Wow. Good morning. How you doing? <clears throat> hey, at least all we have to worry about is COVID-19 now, huh? There's a silver lining. Uh, hey, you know, if you've been here in our church very long, you know that we're, we're all about God's vision for us. And it's really cool when vision is realized. And so I just want to take a moment and just rejoice and enjoy because four and a half years ago when we got here, we were talking about wouldn't it be great if one day we could have a group of people here that could write, edit, produce, and release music. So other churches, other ministries, the world uh, could use those to help glorify God. And we are, we are in that season. And it is so awesome to have that going on. Man. It, and we're not just, we're about God-sized kind of stuff. So that's not anything we had in our wheelhouse and just look forward to the day that that would happen. And, and that day is here. And so it's very exciting. The other thing is, you know, that we are a regional equipping church. As you saw in the video, that's our heart. And it's cool that that's the heart of a lot of churches here to help one another in advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, we're all here about the big C church, not every little individual C church. And so that's really cool. And in a moment like crisis, we get to see that lived out. The other thing that we've been talking about for, for a few years now is the ability to be able to come along a church, alongside a church and, and maybe foster or adopt that church to help it carry out its mission that God's given it. Uh, because that's kind of the puzzle of the kingdom as God places each church in an area with particular personality and gifts and certain ways to do things. And when we bind all that together, the kingdom is advanced. And so you guys know that we are right now in a process of fostering South Burleson Baptist Church. And I've asked you for the last few weeks, I'm looking for 10 families, particularly young families with young children, to go and kind of be a part of that church for 12 months. Well, I'm going to continue to ask. We've had a couple of families sign up for that. We're going to have an interest meeting on March the 7th. That's Sunday at 1230, right after this service. We're going to meet and kind of talk about what that looks like. And I've asked you if you're a young family or just even if you're not a young family, you consider maybe that's something I'd like to be involved in, to begin to pray and just ask God, God, is that what you want us to do? Uh, and if you feel even an inkling uh, of moving that direction, we'd love for you to come to that interest meeting, March the 7th, 12.30 p.m., right after services. And we're going to talk about what that looks like, what that means, allow you to ask more questions. So that's, uh, that's a very exciting thing, too, to see uh, another vision realized for us, uh, and we get to be a part of that. Uh, we are a family, right? We're a church family. And so it's great to be able to work together and do things that God's called us to do. So here's the series, Who's Your One? You've seen cards on your chairs. You've hopefully heard that, that terminology before. So I don't know what images come to your mind, but let me just kind of do a little word association with you for a minute. When I say the word Super Bowl champs, who comes to your mind? You talk out loud. This is church. Cowboys, there's hopeful, right? You must be over the age of 20. <clears throat> Let's see, Kevin. Anybody? Super Bowl champions 2020, Tampa Bay. <laughs> yes. All right, how about greatest of all time? Go, Tom Brady. Who said Sam Ross? Somebody said Sam Ross. I heard Sam Ross. Uh, okay, how about grocery store? <laughs> well, I just kind of caused a fight. Um, how about NASCAR fan? <laughs> Nobody's looking at anybody. 
Oh, come on, we're all NASCAR fans, aren't we? You are. No, you are. Um, okay, how about the greatest executive pastor of all time? How, yeah, don't want that job. How about greatest student pastor of all time? What, comes, what image comes to mind when I say the word Christian? Maybe a face, maybe a description, maybe someone in your past, maybe someone you know now. Andy Stanley says that if you were to ask 10 people to give their idea description of a Christian, you get nine different responses. If you go out on the street and ask someone, are you a Christian? You're going to get someone to say, well, yes. You'll have someone will say, well, I, I think so. Some will say, well, what do you mean? <laughs> Others will say, well, no. Others, well, I am, but I'm not like, and then fill in the blank. So if you walk around in our culture here in the Bible Belt and in, in our country, and you say, what is a Christian? Probably people are going to have a response, to whether they see themselves as one or not. They'll kind of have an idea of what a Christian is. You'll probably encounter people that had, an, had a religious experience. They, they walked an aisle one day or at camp or at church. Uh, they filled out a card. They, they prayed with someone maybe. They went through a class. Uh, maybe they even baptized. And so that's the experience when they think of, that's probably like most, many of us here in the room, having that same experience. You talk to some people and they're like, well, I've always been a Christian. I mean, I was born a Christian. Right? Maybe they were born in a Christian home or as far back as they can remember they were in church. And so they just feel like I'm a Christian. I was born a Christian. So that word Christian seems to be a little confusing even in our world, though for most of it's pretty comfortable. But just general public may be a little confusing. So what about the word disciple? Right? So I say that word disciple. What image comes to your mind? Do you see somebody like in a robe and shaved head or you know, barefoot, uh, what the idea of disciple. So since the word Christian is a little confusing, maybe we need to focus a little bit more on this idea of a disciple. Because what many of us understand is when you say that you believe in Jesus, you become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And maybe the word Christian is a little bit confusing. In fact, that's it's kind of the question I want to ask you today. Are you a disciple of Jesus, or have you just accepted the level of, label of Christian? It's interesting. If you go back to the New Testament, when Jesus was on the earth during his ministry and he had his followers, they didn't call themselves Christians. In fact, it wasn't until Acts chapter 11 that the word Christian is even introduced, and it was used by non-followers of Jesus, and it was a derogatory term. It was used to make fun of the Jesus followers. Christian means little Christs. And so that was actually a negative term. The followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves disciples of Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting uh, that we stop calling ourselves Christian, although the word Christian is only mentioned three times in the Bible. The word disciple is listed 281 times. So I'm not saying we stop calling ourselves Christian, but maybe a deeper understanding of what that term really is because it is confusing, especially to people who are outside of the church. 
This morning, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew writes his gospel, and it is the first of the four gospels we have in our New Testament. And so it's the first introduction that we have of where Jesus actually calls his disciples. You know, he had 12 that followed him closely. He had a group of 70 or more that kind of followed him around, but the 12 were the closest. And even inside the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, who were even closer to Jesus than the others. But here in Matthew chapter 4, we see where Jesus calls his first disciples. Look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and his brother, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Pretty simple story. You've probably read it before, heard it before. It doesn't seem super eventful at the moment, although we realize now, 2020 looking back, what this call was all about. But it's an interesting story because when you just take it on face value, why did they follow him? Jesus had not done anything of significance yet. This was the beginning of his earthly ministry. He hadn't really performed any miracles. We hadn't, hadn't seen him on the stage. He hadn't done a lot of teaching yet. Why would they follow him? This strange guy walks up and says, follow me, and, and they do it. So the question is, did he offer them more money? Were they having a tough time fishing? And said, hey, I can pay you more than you're making now? It doesn't say that. Did he perform some kind of Jedi mind trick and just hypnotize the disciples and they, like zombie, we will follow you? Doesn't seem like it. And so to help understand why they were so willing to follow him, it's important you understand the context of what's going on in, in the Hebrew world. Jesus is a rabbi. He is becoming, he's a young budding rabbi on his way to fulfilling his religious calling, his ministry as the son of God, but he's, he's in that form of a rabbi. And so if you know anything about Jewish culture, Hebrew culture, every Hebrew boy at the age of five was enrolled in Torah school, Hebrew school. Every male at the age of five in Torah school. And their job for the next five years was to learn, know, and memorize the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the law. So their job was to know and memorize and be able to teach the law. Now, that happened for five years. At age 10, there was a weeding out. There was a cut. And if you didn't make the cut, then you went back to your family to work in the family business to help support the family. But if you did make the cut, then you would continue on for five more years learning, knowing, memorizing the rest of the Old Testament until age 17. At age 17, there was another cut. Now, if you decided that that was your calling, what you wanted to do was be a religious leader, to be a rabbi, then you would continue on. Or if you decided, hey, this is not for me or you didn't make the cut, then you went back and worked in the family business. If you decided to go on and pursue being a rabbi, the next thing you had to do was find a rabbi that already existed, one that you admired, one that you had learned from, one that you had met, and then you had to apply to be a part of his team. 
So the word rabbi means teacher. The word disciple is Talmud. So a Talmud was a disciple. And so a rabbi, because in, back in the day, being a rabbi was the greatest career of all time. He was highly respected, highly sought after back in the day. And so these young boys, they were the best and the brightest that the Torah school had to offer. And so they would make application, and a, and a rabbi wanted to pick the best and the brightest, and he had that right to. And so he would receive these applications and then choose which would be his Talmudim. Talmudim is the plural of Talmud. So he would have his disciples, his followers. And that's what his responsibility was. And so he would become their mentor. And for the next several years, they would just spend as much time with him as possible learning from him. In fact, they would actually mimic his mannerisms. They would try to look like him, talk like him, use their hands like him. They would learn how he would answer certain questions and respond in certain situations, and they would mimic that. In fact, if you wanted to pay a Talmud the greatest compliment, you would say to them, the dust of your rabbi is all over you, which meant you are becoming just like your rabbi. And that was the desire of the rabbi. He would pick young men, the best and the brightest, that he saw in the potential to become just like him. And so here we have Jesus coming in. And now, among the ranks of rabbis, there were a select few that were kind of seen above all the rest of the rabbis. And these rabbis were a little bit different, and they had a special title called the shmika. That's a fun word to say, isn't it? Shmika. Shmika in Hebrew means authority. So they were recognized as those who had authority. They were different than the other rabbis. They had a deeper understanding of Scripture. They were able to expound in greater ways the Old Testament than the other rabbis. So in order to become a rabbi with smicha, first of all, you had to perform a miracle. And there had to be evidence of the miracle. The second thing is you had to be conferred on by two other rabbis with smicha that you had smicha, that you had authority. So in the, in the first century, there were only a couple that we know about, Hillel and Gamaliel. You know, you know those guys, right? So these were two rabbis with Smicha. Okay, so here comes Jesus on the scene. And Jesus obviously had Smicha. We know that. They didn't know that, but we do. Because you go back to his baptism, the beginning of his earthly ministry. He hasn't done anything yet, but there with John the Baptist in the wilderness, John the Baptist baptizes him. You remember what happened when Jesus came out of the water? A dove lands on his shoulder. It is the Holy Spirit. The voice of God rings from the heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's a miracle. <laughs> so those around there seeing this miracle recognize this rabbi's got smicha, at least to this point. Now, he's not been conferred on by other rabbis, but there's evidence that something's going on here, that this guy's different. John the Baptist said, this guy is different. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. That's how much smicker this dude's got, right? And so we begin to see that recognition that Jesus is a rabbi. So now his next responsibility is to choose his Talmudim, his disciples. And so what we see here in Matthew is interesting because Jesus, unlike most of the rabbis, he doesn't go to the best and brightest of the Torah school. He goes to the B team. He goes to fishermen who went to Hebrew school and either at age five, or age 10 or age 17, 
somewhere didn't make the cut, and they're back doing the family business, not going on to be a rabbi. These are the ones who didn't make it. They're the B team. But this is who Jesus goes after. Because we see that this truly is the heart of Jesus, that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Now, the willing may be the best, but that's not a given. Jesus goes after not the best, not the people you and I would choose, not the people that other rabbis would choose, but he goes after the willing. Because when he says to them, follow me, they leave their careers, they leave their father, they leave everything to follow him. That's powerful. You don't just do that when somebody walks by that you don't really know. So that's evidence there's something going on with this Jesus. He chooses the ordinary. We see that through the Old Testament and we see it through the New Testament. Jesus chooses, he calls the ordinary because what he is working in the world is not dependent on the talent of the disciples. What Jesus is doing in the world is going to be in spite of their lack of talent and their lack of ability because what God wants to do, his kingdom is not dependent on our talent. Jesus is not looking for our ability. He's looking for our availability. And these disciples were available. They'd been cut out. <laughs> Probably made fun of it. You couldn't make it, right? You ever been cut from a team or something? It's painful. You carry that around. These guys are carrying around, and that's who Jesus went after. Because if, if it was based on their talent, they would never learn to depend on him. And we're the same way, aren't we? When we start getting a little, little cocky, a little, little ahead of ourselves, a little big-headed, all of a sudden it's, it's what we're doing, <laughs> not what God's doing. That's, that's our human nature. So Jesus picks the ordinary because he didn't want them to have to battle with that. He wanted them to learn how to lean on his power. Because here's the truth. Jesus' power in the weakest of vessels, the weakest of people, is infinitely greater than any power that exists on the planet without Jesus. You get that? The, the weakest of vessel filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than anything you and I know on this earth that doesn't have Jesus. John the Baptist was an example of this. You know John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, forerunner of Jesus, camel hair and locust, you know that guy? He was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus said this of John the Baptist, there has never been a greater preacher than John the Baptist. But the least in the kingdom is still greater than John the Baptist. That's crazy. He's the greatest preacher, but you take the least in the kingdom and he's still greater than John. What does that mean? Because until the baptism... John didn't have Jesus. He, wasn't, he was doing what he's called to do, but it wasn't in the power of Jesus. So let's just mathematically speaking, those here online or those here on campus listening to this message, the, the least means probably the, the least biblical knowledge, the least eloquent speaker or teacher, the least number of spiritual gifts, 
that's going to be one person here or one person listening. Somebody's going to fit that mold, that category. They're going to be least in the kingdom at First Baptist Burleson. It's just based on numbers and our understanding of this. And what Jesus is saying, even the least in the kingdom at First Baptist Burleson, filled with the power of Jesus, is greater than John the Baptist, the greatest preacher of all time. <laughs> what? Well, wait a minute, I thought I had to be really good at this and really great at that, and I've got to have all. No, no. If you're the least, rejoice. You're not discounted. You're not on the B team. <laughs> Jesus would choose you. In fact, he did. This is who Jesus is going after. So again, it's not about our ability. It's about our availability. So here's the question. How available are you to God? How available are you? Do you just love wearing the title Christian, but you're not ready to commit to being a disciple? The other thing that comes out of this passage is this principle, God chose us, not we him. That's, that's significant. God chose us, we did not choose him. I hope you know that. He pursued us. The Bible says that God loved us first. If God had not chosen to love us, we had no ability to love him back. We would have never loved him first, but he chose us. John 15, 16, the Bible says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. The fruit here is people, people being rescued from their sins. So again, back in, in rabbi days, the young men would apply, the rabbi would choose who they would want to join their team, and they're always looking for the best and the brightest. When I was reading this passage, I just kind of had this analogy of fantasy football. I love playing fantasy football. And when I first started fantasy football, I learned very quickly, you don't just take the team that's given to you. You're always drafting and trading, and even through the season, you want to keep moving around because you're trying to find the best players so that you can win. You don't choose the players on the injured reserve. You don't choose the undrafted. You're looking for the best. Jesus chose the undrafted. <laughs> he chose those on injured reserve, whether spiritually, emotionally, or physically, they were on the injured reserve list. And he appointed them. He, appointed, he had an appointment with them. He appointed them for a purpose. Listen, Jesus has appointed you as a disciple of Jesus for a purpose. Your purpose, above all else, is to point people to him. Not to save people, you and I can't do that. But every one of us very easily can point people to Jesus. The danger is we point them to the wrong Jesus. We need to make sure we're pointing them to the right Jesus. But that's all our responsibility, not just the leaders or the life group leaders or the trustees or the staff. He chose us, he planned us, he repurposed us. And he pursues this calling within us and he will not let it fail, even when you and I lack confidence. 
He pursues this calling, this great commission. But in this story, something very significant. What is Jesus' first call to these disciples is to follow him. The first call is into a relationship with Jesus. Before the mission, before the ministry, it's a relationship. Come follow me. That's an invitation to join Jesus, to live with him. Our first call is to join him, is relationship. Before understanding what our job in the kingdom is, our first call is to relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't even tell these disciples exactly what they're going to be doing. Fish for people, okay, what does that mean? He doesn't tell them where they're going. He just calls them and they follow. So you consider our church. We have programs, we have ministries, we have worship services, we have life groups, we have challenges, read the Bible through, we have father-daughter banquets, we have all these events to help you know and follow Jesus better. That, that is the goal of all that we do as a church, is to help one another grow in understanding of being a Talmud, a disciple of Jesus, that we can follow him better and listen to him better. So the question is, do you want the dust of your rabbi all over you? <laughs> and when I say that, when you consider following Jesus, I hope that it brings joy to your heart. At churches, we're really good about the, here's what you need to do, boom, 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 and, and spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible, pray, go to church, all that stuff. And that's great, and that's important. But if it doesn't start with a love relationship with Jesus, then it's either become mechanical or it just doesn't happen. I hope that when you think of Jesus, your face lights up. I hope that when you consider being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it brings joy to your life. I hope that when you think of, of coming to First Baptist Burleson, it brings joy to your life, that you enjoy being here. I, I know that we've been away from church for a long time, and I hope people can't wait to get back because they enjoy being here. There's nothing wrong with enjoying being in church, nothing wrong with having fun and laughter at church. There's nothing wrong with enjoying following Jesus, that it brings joy. If it doesn't bring joy, we're probably not going to carry it out very long. Jesus wants to be filled, us to be filled with joy. Then Jesus makes it clear to follow him, we have to leave everything. Matthew highlights this in two things that he mentions in this passage, the boat that they're fishing in and their father Zebedee. So why? Why those two things? Well, the boat here represents career. Zebedee, the father, back in, in Jewish culture, the the most significant relationship was the relationship between father and son. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to leave your career and you've got to leave your family, your significant relationships to follow me. So it did cost them everything. Now, in our context, following Jesus may or may not cost you a career, probably not going to cost you a career. It might for some. It's probably not going to cost you a relationship with your mom and dad or with your family. It's some, but not, probably not most of us. My first church I pastored was Sunset Canyon Baptist in Dripping Springs. And there was a couple in the church there. He was an American. She was Japanese. He had worked for a company in Japan, met Hiromi, married her, and brought her back to the States. And they would come to church. He was a Christian. She was a Buddhist spiritist growing up in that culture. 
And so she was coming to church for a while, and she was learning English, and she came to my office one day and said, Ronnie, I hear a lot about this Jesus, and you say that he's God, and that he's Lord, and that he died for my sins, and, and I just want to know if this is true. I don't, I don't believe that. I, I want to know. And so for a year, I mean, it took a whole year, we would talk, I would answer questions, I gave her books to read. We would pray together. I would pray for her. The church knew about Hiromi and her pursuit to want to know if Jesus was the real deal. And so for a year, we went through this process. She said, I want to know that Jesus is real because if I accept Jesus as the leader and forgiver of my life, that means I'm breaking away from my family. My family will disown me. In fact, they will actually have a funeral for me because I will be dead to them at that point because I've forsaken the gods of my family and my ancestors. So this was a serious deal. So that's why it took a year. And I'll never forget that Sunday. Sitting in the back where they sat, as all good Baptists do. At the end of the message, we had an invitation time. The music's playing. I'm standing down front as I normally did. And here Hiromi steps out to the middle aisle like this one. And she begins to make her way towards the front. And I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm shaking at that point because I'm thinking this is either a deal breaker. She's like, this is not true and I'm out of here. Or this is the turning point for her. She walked out front and our eyes met. And she goes, I know he's real. I know he's real, and I want Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of my life. Man, you talk about a celebration. The church erupted, people were cheering, standing up, and right there she asked Jesus to come into her life. And the weight of that moment, because we all knew, at that moment, she became dead to her family. It's not an experience most of us can relate to, but it's happening, and it happens. But that's what it means to be a disciple. And then he commands us, all of us, to make disciples. To be a disciple means we make disciples. It's the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He wants us as his disciples to reproduce spiritually. It's in our DNA. It's what we do. Being a fisher of people is essential to being a disciple. In fact, I would be so bold as to say this. If you are not reproducing spiritually, if you are not bearing spiritual fruit, pointing others to Jesus, I think you have every right to question if you're a disciple or not. To wonder, have I just accepted the label Christian without understanding what a Christian really is? Am I playing the game without truly being a follower? because it's going to be natural for a disciple to point people to Jesus because he's the greatest thing we've ever found. We're not going to be able to keep it in. Even when it's weird and awkward, we're going to want to share. 
In fact, in this passage, the Great Commission, making disciples is the only verb. The others are simply participles. This is the core, make disciples. That's the core. That's the core of what we do as a Christian. That's the core of all we do as a church. What motivates us to help people in need through COVID-19, through snowmageddon, is so we can make disciples. Because I, honestly, obviously, COVID-19 has been a horrific worldwide experience and suffering. Snowmageddon has been painful and suffering, and still some are suffering. But I guarantee you, there is no suffering on earth that compares to the devastation of eternal suffering, where there is no hope and there is no end. And that is the destiny for those who reject Jesus as the leader and forgiver of their lives. And our job is not to save them, but our job is to tell them there is another way. There is a Jesus. And let me tell you how he suffered for you so you don't have to suffer for eternity. And if you can't get excited about that and you can't be bold in telling people about that, I think we need to question our true identity. So all we've been talking about, church deployed, all we've been talking about in the series up to that, all we've been talking about recently is leading up to this moment. And here's the question, who's your one? A few months ago, I challenged you to know the neighbors, three houses to the left, three houses to the right, across the street, to know the people that live around you, to be a good neighbor to them. But here's where we go to the next level. What I want to challenge you to do now is to find one of those people or one of those families that live around you, that you have influence over, that you've hopefully started to build a relationship with, and find out if they're a disciple of Jesus. I want to give you a simple question to ask. Just simply ask, as you get to know them, do you attend church anywhere? That's the most basic, non-threatening, non-abrasive question we can ask them. Believing that the a large majority of people who do not have a church home are not disciples of Jesus. That's not always the case. I get that. But if they're not connected to, to a church, there may be some other issues going on in their life spiritually. But most likely, they're not a true follower of Jesus if they're not connected to a faith community somewhere. Let's just start by asking that question. There's a card on your seat that you got when you walked in. Take that with you. There's a QR code that will, you can scan. It'll take you to a web page. talks more about this. But here's the first step. I'm going to be challenging us over the next few weeks on these three applications. The first one is just fine. Make sure you've been holding off, getting to know your neighbors. Go do that now. Check on their water pipes. Make sure they have electricity. There's plenty of reason to check on each other now. And just in that conversation somewhere, hey, you know, hey, I go to First Baptist Bursley. You go to church anywhere? If they don't, then invite them to a church. If they do, then that's awesome. God bless. That's not your one. We're not going after people of other churches. We're not going after other disciples of Jesus. We are going after those who are far from God. We're going to pursue Jesus by loving people, especially those who are far from him. This is our target. As you can see, there is no guarantee on earth. There's only one who guarantees eternal hope, and that's Jesus. And you talk about a world that's in hopelessness? <laughs> I don't know that it gets any more hopeless than this.
We cannot wait. No more excuses. No more pride. No more arrogance. No more somebody else will tell them. No, this is you. Jesus' plan in Matthew 28 is still his plan today. And his plan to share the greatest news of all time is not a program. It's not an app. It's a person. And that person is you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, he has appointed you to point people to him. Got it? Let's do it. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us and sending your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for rescuing us. God just kind of hit me, you know. At one point, we were that one. Help us to remember when we were that one. And help us to remember that person, or that ministry, or that preacher, or that sermon, or that song that spoke to the depths of our heart to tell us that there is one who loves us unconditionally. There is one who is calling us into a relationship, a loving eternal relationship. Help us to remember the day we said yes to you. How can we not want that for the people we know? Father, I pray that you would point out the one to us, whether it's the one person or the one family. I mean, God, just imagine if every one of us had that one. And over this next year, we saw all of these ones coming to faith in you. Talk about shaking up a place. <laughs> oh, God. This is what we ask. Because this is what you've asked of us. And so, Father, I would pray right now, if there's someone that's just really convicted over this issue, are you just wearing the label Christian or are you a true follower of Jesus? That today would be the day, no shame, no condemnation, but today would be the day that they make that right whether they've been playing the game, living a lie before, it can all be real right now. Like Hiromi, they can say, Jesus, I know you're real. I believe in you. And today I give my life to you. Jesus, I pray it happens all over the internet, it happens all over church campuses today. We don't have time to wait. Give us more. I pray this in the name that is above every name, the name that saves, Jesus Christ. Amen.